The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, good morning, good morning. How you guys doing today? Good, good. Hey, a couple of quick announcements before we get started here. Some things that you guys need to know. Uh, first of all, Bob and Kelly Kearns, who uh, they lead our flip side of 50 uh, group, they have put together a ministry to shut-ins. Uh, some of you may be aware and may not be aware, but um, w- over the years, there have been lots of people who have been a, a, a central part of heritage and people that we love and we know and we care about. But because of health issues or um, you know, different uh, afflictions that have, that have come into their lives, uh, many of them aren't able to make it to be with us in fellowship on Sunday mornings. And so um, Bob and Kelly have put together uh, a ministry to go and be with them, and to meet them in their household and uh, to have fellowship with them and just spend time loving those people who are missing from the body and uh, such an awesome, awesome thing. By the way, just parenthetically, side note, you know, in the early church, that, that's the kind of thing that would happen. Like er- early on, like if you were a part of a body, you belonged. You know what I mean? And, and if you were gone, like people loved you and went to your house. Matter of fact, the elders of the church oftentimes would bring communion to those who were sick and unable to be with the larger gathering of people. And so Bob and Kelly, with that heart, have really taken that on as a ministry to care for these folks. So you can get more information uh, about that from the bulletin or at the info desk. You can reach out personally. Bob, would you raise your hand just real quick? So... You can reach out personally to Bob or to Kelly, either one of them, and, and they would uh, gladly sign you up and, and give you some direction in the, in the middle of that. Second announcement, write the word study for the ladies uh, through the book of Acts. That starts this coming Thursday, March 1st, and booklets are available today at the Connect desk. Um, and, and so, ladies, this is an awesome, awesome study. It's an opportunity to actually write down the scriptures. There's something that happens in our hearts when we begin to write the word and, and walk through that and study together. And so, uh, you gals, I, I cannot encourage you enough to be a part of that. And uh, I would encourage you to go to the, to the info desk, get some information, get signed up for that if you're not already involved. Also, uh, right now... Currently, the ladies are away at a combined retreat with another church over at Lake Bradley on the coast. They're going to be coming back through a snowstorm. So uh, we want to lift them up and pray for safety as they return and, and uh, just God's grace as, as they come back. So let's go ahead and bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, we do lift up the ladies to you. I pray, first of all, that the good things that you have done through this retreat would not get lost. That the things that you have spoken, the ways in which you have ministered to those women as they've taken time to go and and retreat away from uh, the battlefield of life and to retreat to you, that those deep things that you've done in the hearts would be carried with them that you would continue to confirm and establish all that you desire to do through their time together. And also, God, we ask that you would protect them on their way home as they're traveling in in, uh, bad weather, 
keep them safe and alert and aware of what's going on around them. I know after retreats, you could be kind of tired and exhausted, but God, would you just give them the strength and the ability to, uh, to travel home safely? So protect them, keep them from getting trapped in the mountains somewhere uh, without uh, a way to pass over, and I just pray that you bring them home to us safely and quickly. And also, God, as we open up your word, we ask that you would open our hearts. Um, just me being up here as a speaker, uh, trying to improve or say something that would add to the clarity of your word is, is almost funny. But I know that something else happens too, Lord, when I, I speak your word. Your spirit works and you awaken the hearts of your people and you minister to their needs and you touch their lives, God, and you remind them of the depth of your love. And so, God, we just avail ourselves to you this morning to do that very work. God, have your way in us. We want to be a people who are shaped by the truth of your word, who are standing upon it as a firm foundation because it teaches us how we might know you and love you and follow you all of our days. So accomplish your good work in us, we pray. In the name of Jesus and for his glory, amen. Amen. We are going to be in Luke chapter 7. If you need a Bible this morning, would you lift your hand up in the air so that uh, we can get a Bible to you and make sure that you have one? Uh, if you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. Feel free to take it home. If you, you do have one, uh, you can have two or, <laughs> or you can return it after the service is over. Luke chapter 7. Now, uh, we're going to be picking it up in verse 36 and traveling through uh, the end of the chapter here. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at Heritage. It's my wonderful privilege to bring to you the scriptures this morning if you're new or visiting. Uh, welcome, and I'm glad that you're here. To set this up a little bit, uh, I'd like to ask you a question. Have you ever had an awkward encounter? You know, a, a moment where something happens, it's just so weird and like off from the norm that, that you walk away kind of like, oh, should I have done something different? What could I have done? What happened? That was weird. Why did that happen? Uh, such is the story that we're about to take a look at. You know, uh, I, in 1999 and 2000, I went through uh, the School of Ministry at Applegate Christian Fellowship. One of the best years of my life. We did an incredible amount of ministry and, uh, you know, got some exposure to the Word of God, teaching through the Scriptures. All of that was wonderful. And then lots of classes preparing you for how to prepare sermons and how to worship. And, you know, these classes were, were kind of offered to train us as young men uh, to do ministry. And that was wonderful. The one thing that they didn't have a class on that they should have had a class on is, uh, you know, awkward moments in ministry. Because our job is chock full of them. <laughs> I don't know why it is that way. It just it seems to be that that's, that's kind of the way things are. Um, matter of fact, I feel at this point, you know, I've been doing pastoral ministry for 18 years now. And I feel like at this point, maybe I could teach a class on awkward ministry moments. 
that would maybe be equipping to young people who are unprepared for the types of things that you'll encounter in ministry. For instance, I remember one time uh, while I was living in Cape Junction, my, the, the van, our little minivan that we drove, our little Honda, the kids from their car seat had flipped on the, the lights in the minivan. And, uh, and so we went out. We had to leave. We're in a hurry, of course. So we get all the kids in the car, and then we go to turn it, and the, the battery's dead. Well, I didn't have any uh, jumper cables or anything, so I, I thought, well, I'll just go, I'll go borrow some from the neighbor. So I, I go across the street to the neighbor I know, right, and knock on the door, but the, they're not home. So it's like, well, okay, I, we got to go. I'll knock on the door of the neighbor I don't know. And so I go to the door. The, the, the actual door is open, but there's a screen door that's, that's closed. And, and so I, I knock, and I hear a voice, a male voice on the inside Hello, come on in. I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, so I open the door and I go in, and uh, there's an older gentleman there standing in his underwear and his in his boxers, just standing there staring at me. And I'm like, uh, I'm sorry. I thought I said, heard you say come in. He's like, oh, you know, don't, don't worry about it. You know, we're guys. You know, it's not that big of a deal. And I'm like. Yeah, so, hey, funny story. You know, my kids left the light on, the van is dead, and, you know, do you have any jumper cables? He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I can totally do that. He goes, hey, aren't, aren't you a pastor? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I sure am. Yeah, pastor at a local church. That, that, that's great. He's like, oh, that, that's, that's, that's wonderful. And he just starts crying. Like. <laughs> Oh, what's going on here, you know? And so I'm, I'm trying to, like, maybe this is some sort of divine appointment, right? You know, God sets up, like, a little underwear appointment for me or <laughs> something like that, right? And so I'm like, hey, what's going on? He's like, I'm sorry, I'm such a mess. You know, I had this little dog for 17 years. He was my best friend. I walked him every day, and, you know, and then, and then he died. And it's, okay, so I grew up... Um, a butcher's son, right? Like we had pets and then we didn't, <laughs> right? And then we had dinner, <laughs> right? So like I didn't have a real attachment to pets, never have, probably never will, but, but I, I, I'm thinking with my pastor head, with my pastor heart, I'm like, okay, well, obviously, you know, this guy's upset. Some people get really attached to their animals and that's, that's just... You know, that's what happens. So uh, I'm like, oh, man, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to hear that. I know that could be really tough. Um, can I pray for you? It's like, oh, yeah, that, that, that would be great, you know. And so he's standing there in his underwear, and I'm just going to pray, right? Uh, so I, I go to kind of extend my hand to just, like, pray for him, but also to create a visual barrier, <laughs> right? And so he comes closer to me, and, and I realize, okay, he's... He, he wants to be close while we pray. Uh, and I'm, okay. So I go to put my hand on his shoulder, which is weird because he's got like fur <laughs> kind of like growing here, right? I'm like, oh. And he just, he ducks my shoulder and just comes in for the full bro hug. I'm like, okay. All right. So... Let's pray. 
trying to find a place to put my hand. <laughs> Jesus. Please help my brother here. His heart is hurting. Uh, God, please minister to his need. In Jesus' name, amen. And he's just like, thank you. He's like hugging me. He's hugging me. He's hugging me. And then all of a sudden, he starts kissing my neck. I'm like, ah! I push him away. I cock my fist. I'm like, I'm going to hit you in the name of Jesus. You know, I'm like... I don't know what's going on. I have no idea. And he looks at me, and he's shocked, and I'm shocked. And he goes, uh, I'm not gay. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, look, dude, I just need some jumper cables. That is the only thing that I need from you. Can you please, do you have any jumper cables? I can go somewhere else. He's like, let me get the jumper cables. So I'm keeping like 10 feet of space between me and him. He gets the jumper cables. He hands them to me. I'm like, thank you. I back my way out the door, head up the hill to my house, get the car started. I sit down. My wife is driving. I sit down in the passenger seat, and I'm just, I'm like, I cannot believe that just happened to me. My wife's like, what is your problem? What's wrong with you? She has no clue what I just went through, right? She's just sitting there with a smile on her face like it's no big deal. And I'm like, you are not going to. So I tell her the story. She thinks it's hilarious. (laughs) She thinks it's so funny. She goes, hey, by the way, now you got to take the jumper cables back. And I'm like, no, you're taking it back. She's like, no, I'm not. (laughs) So I gently set very sneakily set the jumper cables back on the porch and left <laughs> and didn't say anything. Awkward moments. And this is such a moment in the scriptures. A moment where the whole atmosphere of the room gets just weird. And you're not really sure what to do about it. How do you react? How do you respond in in the middle of this? So here is where we're headed. Let me give you just a a brief outline. These are kind of the main headings, if you will, for those of you who are taking notes as we travel through this portion of Scripture. We're going to take a look at a sinful woman who comes and washes the feet of Jesus with her tears and anoints him with alabaster. And we're going to look at, first of all, verses 36 through 37, we're going to look at her shame. Second of all, verses 37 to 38, we're going to look at her sacrifice. Her sacrifice. Thirdly, verses 39 to 46, her Savior. And verses 47 to verse 50, finally, her salvation. So her shame, her sacrifice, her Savior, and her salvation. Let's read the story. One of the Pharisees asked him, that is, they asked Jesus, to eat with them. And, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, Weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears 
and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more. Simon answered, well, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, oh, you have judged rightly. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, the classic sort of Middle Eastern greeting. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. But she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Can you imagine the awkwardness of this moment? Now, up to this point, Jesus has been very popular. He's he's received by the people, mostly because, you know, for 400 years, there had not been the voice of a prophet. Then all of a sudden, John the Baptist pops up on the scene, and he looks like, talks like, preaches like a prophet. And the people are are, are beginning to be stirred up. He's a weird character. He's got like a camel hair outfit and, uh, you know, a leather belt. And he he likes to eat these giant locusts that are in the Middle East. And and, uh, and, and he's got a sweet tooth. He likes honey. And and instead of going into the city and preaching, he's like this semi-homeless looking person who, who goes out in the desert and preaches at whoever is like walking by. But as people start to hear about him, they they go, man, this sounds a lot like Elijah, the prophet. And and so they they travel out to the desert to come hear him. And he's preaching like um, amazing stuff. He's like, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Make straight the paths that, that, that you've been walking. Prepare your heart for the king. The king is coming. Like you need to get things figured out and, and start walking rightly because the king is coming. And then when Jesus comes down to see John the Baptist, he looks at Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he begins to shift all of his ministerial energy to Jesus. After Jesus is baptized, 
John is, is, is proclaiming, hey, this is the guy. I, I'm not even worthy to unstrap his sandals. I, I don't, I, 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 I'm not even worthy to do that. This is the guy, right? And then after that, as people are like, okay, well, so this is the guy. And John gets arrested. He goes to prison. Jesus has been ministering. But as he's ministering, it definitely looks like he's the guy. Miracles are happening. And, and, and his preaching is powerful. As he exposits the Old Testament law in the previous chapters to this, he opens up the commandments in such a way. He's like, listen, you guys are all concerned about the outward stuff. You know what God cares about? He cares about what's happening in the heart, right? You guys are worried, like, don't commit adultery. And God is saying, no, lust is where that starts. You guys are worried about, like, don't commit murder. If I don't kill anybody, then I guess I'm okay. He's like, no, what motivates murder? It's what's happening in the heart. And he, and he explains the law to them in such a way that people are like, oh, I get it. God wants a surrendered heart. And they, they begin to understand. And, and, and as he goes from town to town, in the previous chapters alone from this, he expo- exposited the purpose of the law. He long distance healed the centurion's servant. You, you guys remember that? Like, you would think, like, there's, to do a healing, you got to be, like, close to the person, right? You got to, like, lay hands on them, anoint them with oil, say a little hibbity-jibbity prayer, right? Or you know, maybe slap them in the forehead. That's what I've seen on TV. Uh, there's got to be some sort of personal contact, right? But he long distance heals this guy because the centurion's like, well, you know, I know how this authority thing works. I did, you don't have to actually be there. If you just say the word, you've got authority. It happens. And Jesus is going, wow, I haven't even seen faith like that in Israel, right? He, he raises a dead person, a widow's son in name. And then John the Baptist's disciples, who are like, okay, what's going on? And even John's sitting in prison like, so is this the king? And is the kingdom coming? Or am I going to sit in prison for a long time? What's going to happen here? So he sends messengers to Jesus and they're like, are you the, are you the dude? Or should we, should we be looking for somebody else? And Jesus says, hey, come here. Let me show you something. And he heals people. And the blind see. And the lame walk. And the lepers are cleansed. And he says, go back to John, tell him what you saw, and tell him, blessed is he who's not offended at me. Look, here's the validation. I'm the dude. I'm the man, right? So Jesus has a lot of energy building around who he is. And, and, and at the same time, there's this positive energy of like people like, Hey, what's going on? Is God doing something new? Is there something unique happening? There's also this negative energy that is happening. And that is uh, the, the great religious people begin to like, okay, well, he, he's, he's not really doing things the way that we would do them. He, you know, like he kind of breaks some of the rules when he's doing stuff. Like, you know, eating grain rolled up with his hands on the Sabbath. And, you know, sometimes he heals on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a day where you don't do work. If you're healing people on the Sabbath, it's, you know, you can't, you're breaking the rules. Sorry, Jesus, but, you know, pick a different day. Oh, yeah, you know, he, he also, he hangs out with these people, right? They're... They're, they're, they're obviously broken people. They've got lots of issues. They're like, 
I, I heard he, he drinks. And he'll sit at the table and have wine with people who are obviously drunk. <laughs> Did you hear about the wedding at Cana of Galilee? Did you hear, did you hear about that? He made 70 gallons of wine at a redneck wedding where they had like already run out. Right? He's officially the Bud Light guy. He's not playing by our rules. And, and, and so right before this story happens, it, it leaps off with this little, this little piece where Jesus confronts that. And he says, you know, you know what you guys are like, you religious people? He says, man, you guys are like, uh, like spoiled kids. You know what you're really bent about? You know what you're really ticked off about? is <laughs> that uh, I won't play your game. You're like, oh, we sang a happy song. You should dance. Oh, we sang a sad song. You should mourn. You're just, now you're upset because I, I won't play your game. You, you say, John the Baptist, like, that guy eats locusts and wild honey, doesn't drink uh, any alcohol, and you're like, oh, he's too strict. You know, he's too, uh, way too tight for us. And then, and then I come along, and I'm hanging out with sinners and, you know, loving people, and, and, and I... I'm eating food, regular food, and drinking wine, and you're like, oh, hey, you know, we don't do that. <laughs> he goes, I, I'm not playing your game. He, and then he sums this idea up with a statement. says, wisdom is justified by her children. Wisdom is justified by her children. Here, here's essentially what he's saying. He's essentially saying, you know, um, the, the kind of kids that you are demonstrates that you're not the kids that come from a wise household. You want to see wisdom, knowledge about who God is being applied to life? Look at me. Look at my children. Look at my disciples. Look at what's happening through my life. Wisdom is justified by her children. Ministry is happening. How many dead people have you raised, Pharisees? How many lepers are being cleansed by you? How many demons are being cast out? You, you, if you want to know whether or not I'm doing the will of God, look at my life and see, is God's will being done? Is it happening? If you say yes, then you need to receive what's going on. So it's in that context. So here's, here's Jesus. All of that is stirring and happening. And he, he enters into this city. And a Pharisee, the, the group of people that's most critical to him, at this point, the, the relationship is not completely soured. People are still just trying to figure out who Jesus is. But a Pharisee says, hey, Jesus, come on over to my place. Now, in the Middle East, this is a really common practice. Matter of fact, back in those days especially, uh, you know, there, there might be one inn in a town or, or something like that. Or if it's a bigger city, there'll be maybe more places to stay. But it was very common that travelers would stay at houses, that they would be invited in as guests, and that they would get to stay there. And, and, and there were like common courtesies that you would do. To, to welcome a guest into your home. One of the things that you would do is that you would give them, if you didn't have servants, you would give them their own bit of water to wash their feet. Because, like, have you ever worn sandals all summer? You got, like, the, the little Chaco tan. You ever seen that? Or, like, have you been bicycle riding in the, in the summer, maybe mountain bike riding, and, you, like, you've got, like, 
you know, the, the dirt line that comes up your, your, your legs. And, and you go to wash, and you're like, oh, look at how tan I am. And then you wash, and your tan, like, disappears. Okay, that's that's the, the, the world that they live in, right? And Jesus is walking around in sandals nonstop, and he's got dirt all over him. And, and so in the Middle East, one of the things that you do is you let people wash their, their feet. It was a way of saying, like, hey, come and rest. Refresh yourself. Right? Another thing that you might do is anoint their head with oil. Same principle. You know, like when you, when you are on a, you know, multiple travel days or you, and, um, and there comes that moment you feel like you've got fur on your teeth and, and you brush your teeth and it feels like you just took a shower because it's, you're so refreshed. That was the idea, right? Anointing your head with oil was like a, a little way to sort of freshen up and feel like, oh, I'm not a disgusting human being. And then when they would come into your home, you would greet them with the, the typical Middle Eastern kiss. You know, greetings, bah, bah, right? Uh, not like the guy in Cave Junction. It's very, very different from that. And so, you know, that, that's, that's kind of what would happen. But, but none of that happens in this story. None of that happens for Jesus. He's invited in and, you know, there's people that are around, apparently, on the outside who are just sort of observing. They don't get to be a part of the meal necessarily, but they're, they're here because there's two religious leaders about to talk and converse over dinner. So they're going to, like, observe what's happening. And I want you to just imagine this moment as, as it sort of unfolds. And Jesus is the honored guest. He's invited into the table. The tables were low, low to the ground. And then they had pillows that they would stack around the table. And then people would lay, leaning on a hand, and they would pick off the table. And their feet were, being, were laid outward from the table like spokes on a bicycle wheel. And they would all kind of just sit and talk and converse. And houses were not very big, so, you know, the fact that they have a space to kind of lay out was, was a big deal. And people are, are crowded around, they're listening, just trying to be a fly on the wall, listening to this conversation. And, and somewhere along the way, this woman has had some sort of encounter with Jesus where, that she believes something about him. Something happening in her heart because she hears that he's there and she goes there with the purpose of seeing him there. She walks in. When she sees Jesus, she, she can barely keep herself together. Have you ever had shame like that? you ever had like that? The overwhelming sense of guilt. I remember the day that I got saved. It was in November of 1997. I, I was so riddled with guilt and shame. I felt like I was the only guy in the room who didn't understand everything that was happening. When the pastor preached, I, I thought he was talking directly to me. So much so that I thought my parents had set me up. Like maybe, you know... Like they told him and he formed a whole sermon just specifically for me, <laughs> not the other 1,500 people in the sanctuary. But it was so pointed and so perfect, I just, I just began to cry. I just began to weep. 
And, and, and then the pastor of that church, he was standing at the back of the sanctuary, and I went to, to leave, but I had to walk right by him. And as soon as our eyes met, man, I just I fell to pieces. Because the weight of my sin was so overwhelming to me in that moment. And this is what happens. This girl, she, she walks in. She's got this reputation. Her lifestyle is obviously incongruous with what she knows is right. She feels burdened by sin and shame and this weight, and she sees him, and she just like falls to pieces right there. And she falls down at his feet, and she starts crying. Not, now, the, the, the Greek word here is not just like, you know, she, she cried or she had a little, not like when you guys are at the movies. You know, your fellas, you're like, it's not that kind of cry. We're talking like snot bubble, <laughs> mascara run, <laughs> you know, like she's just start, like loses it. And the, can you imagine being at the table? She comes in and she falls down right at his feet and she's raining tears. Now, now think about this for a minute. As the tears fall down, they're falling down onto the feet of Jesus. And she's kissing his feet as a sign of like honor and, and um, you know, respect for him. But as the tears fall down, she looks down. She realizes, like, oh, I'm, I'm making a mess. See, the dust on his feet is being mixed with the tears, and it's, just, it's creating, like, mud blotches on skin. She's like, oh, I, I, you know, this honorable man, and I'm, I'm, look, here I am again, defiling him again. She doesn't have a cloth. She doesn't have anything to use to wipe up the mess that she's making. So she undoes her hair. She, she grabs handfuls of her hair. She just starts like wiping the funk away from the feet of Jesus. Like his, his sandal feet. You guys, you guys know what sandal feet are? How atrocious they can be? She, her tears are literally cleansing the feet of Jesus. And she takes her hair and she uses her hair like a mop to soak up the mud and the grime and the filth of his feet. And she's right down in it and she can smell, no doubt, his feet, right? Well, the feet of Jesus didn't stink. Yes, they did. She takes that alabaster vial. It's costly so precious, may have been the most valuable thing that she owned. It's got a one-time use, so you, you can't just like uncork it, pour some out. In order to get the bottle open, you have to break the top off of it, very fragile. She busts the top off, she begins to pour that on his feet, and she's using her hair to spread it around and anoint his feet, and her hair smells like feet and mud whatever is in this alabaster vial. And Jesus just sits there. I mean, the minute somebody touched my feet, I'm like, yeah, whoa, hey there. Right? But he just takes it in. Everybody else is feeling the awkwardness of this moment. You know what's going on around the rest of the table? Like, ooh, okay. Uh, so, she's falling apart. <laughs> All right, about that. Well, this is going to affect our dinner. <laughs> oh, she's touching his feet now. Okay. All right, I'll, oh, she, 
Oh, the hair thing. I, I wasn't expecting that. She's, she's kissing. Kissing his, oh, she's kissing his feet. I can no longer eat the cheese that is on the table. She pulls out the ointment. It's awkward for everybody except Jesus. He just receives it. So think about the hugeness of that moment. Everyone has questions. The whole room is watching. Not the least of which is Simon, the Pharisee. And he's got questions too. So let's, let's, let's talk about her for a minute. Let's talk about her shame, verses 36 through 37. It says very simply, verse 37, Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Simon goes on to repeat this, saying if Jesus was a real prophet, he'd know what kind of woman is doing this to him right now. He would, he would get that. In some translations, it uses the word immoral. And, and, and here's, here's what happens. You see, it's her shame that has driven her to Jesus. She is, she's weighed down with a sense of, gout, of guilt. Why? Because her sin, first of all, was infamous. It was infamous sin. It was, uh, it was sin that was known to everybody. Everybody could see it, and everybody knew. And, and, and if she's walking through town, she could, she could walk by somebody and feel the glares. You ladies know what I'm talking about, don't you? How it happens in woman's world? Like, oh, who does she think she is? She doesn't deserve to walk on the street. She can sense how famous her sin is. She can sense her reputation. Her sin was infamous. She's a known sinner. Her sin was immoral. According to some translations, it seems to indicate that there was a sexual component here, that maybe she was like a a prostitute or at the very least a floozy. And here, here she is. This famous, immoral, probably sexual sinner. But I think Jesus saw something else too. And that is that her sin was idolatrous. You know, after years of ministry and working with people, and one of the things that you, you begin to see is that sinners respond to sins against them sinfully. That's what you begin to see. They, they, they function out of brokenness. Sins are committed against them. They get wounded in some way. They get hurt in some way. And their response is, I just, I just need a little relief. I need some, some way to feel different. And so they turn to drugs or alcohol or career or you know, sex or some form of addiction. They turn to something else to cope with how they feel about who they are on the inside. 
All of these things are just functional idols. Things that we worship and serve to try and get a sense of okayness. Our sin was probably an idol. Maybe it was an event that she endured in her life that caused such trauma. It would make her think she was worthless. That the only thing she brought to the table of value was her body. Maybe it was a wrong that she suffered. Maybe it was something she felt guilt and shame over and and was guilty of personally, but her shame drives her to the place where she goes, I need to go see Jesus. Now think about this. Think about the contrast here. There, There was something about Jesus that made it so people who were notorious sinners wanted to go hang out with him. Now, now contrast that with the church. You ever, you ever had a conversation with somebody and you're like, hey man, you know, listen, you should come to church with me. I think it'd be awesome if you, you just came. I'll, I'll sit with you and you, know, you invite somebody and they're like, <laughs> I'm not setting foot in that place. If I do, the roof will catch on fire or the, you know, the walls will fall in or you know, they crack some joke about that because they feel already a sense of guilt and shame. And they go, no, church is the place where well people go. People who aren't jacked up, people who aren't screwed up. That's where they hang out. I'm screwed up. If I go in, the place will be soiled. Apparently, they don't know a lot of Christians. The reason we gather is we're broken people. And there's something different about the way that we conduct ourselves that oftentimes church is the very last place a sinner wants to go. But there's something so powerful about Jesus' personality and the way that he conducts himself that sinners flock to him. When they're throwing a kegger, they're like, hmm, who do I want to invite? Oh, I, you know, my bro down here, he loves to party hard, and that guy, and that guy, and oh yeah, Jesus. I'd love to have him. He's going to be great. You see, her shame drove her to the feet of Jesus. Parenthetically, side note. Shame, on the one hand, can have such power over us. On the other hand, it can be the very tool that God uses to free us. It it can be the thing that awakens us to our need to be healed, to be freed by Jesus. It drives us oftentimes to him. And on the one hand, it can become institutional where you just live under the weight of it. On the other hand, it could be that trigger that points you to like, I'm tired of living weighed down like this. I just need to breathe. I need grace. I need forgiveness. I need someone to save me and to lift the burden from me. And it is her shame that drives her to Jesus. 
Next, let's, let's talk about her sacrifice. Verses 37 through 38. It cost her financially, it cost her emotionally, it cost her spiritually. It cost her greatly, this sacrifice. First of all, it cost her financially. The gift was costly, wasn't it? Maybe the most expensive thing that she owned. Often this was a way that people saved and invested money. It was like stocks or something like that because, uh, you know, in those days, like gold coins and stuff were very heavy and, and if you carried them with you, there was like a lot of weight. So you would buy something of worth or value that you could trade and this conveniently would hang around the neck of a woman, these alabaster vials, and, and it was a, a significant savings. So it cost her financially to give this. Second of all, it cost her emotionally. Think about the vulnerability that was required in this. Think, think about how much she had to be willing to be exposed to. To enter the Pharisee's home was terrifying for her. She had to be vulnerable to all the stares of other people and all the sideways glances and what's she doing here and why is she here and all of that. She, she had to endure it, be willing to be hurt for it. It cost her socially. The people who already thought poorly of her would see her broken and weeping. And, and if there's any one thing that broken people hate, it's the exposure, exposure of being broken in front of others. You know that you, like, I refuse to cry in front of my father. I won't do it. I don't want him to see how he affects me. You know what I'm talking about? What kind of brokenness kept her from weeping previously to this? What kind of walls did she have to develop in life to protect herself so that when she's walking down the street and she sees that other person with a sideways glance kind of looking at her and to like be able to deflect that? What kind of barriers and boundaries do you have to put up around you to keep your heart from being hurt any further when you are a person of shame? It costs her emotionally through vulnerability, through the social consequences, and it costs her emotionally because there was a sense in which this was her security. There's a sense in which she could be saying, the only thing I have of worth or value is this alabaster vial. My life is full of shame. I have nothing else. Here, here. It's the only thing valuable I have. It's my only security. It's my only hope for the future. I, here. And she dumps it out. It cost her emotionally, and thirdly, it cost her spiritually if she indeed was a prostitute, this could be the wealth that she gained from that life. And so there's another sense in which the breaking of this vial is, is an act of repentance. Like everything I have gained from the life that I've lived is saved right now in this bottle. Take it. She dumps it out over the feet of Jesus. What an incredible sacrifice that she makes. 
And thirdly, we're going to look at her Savior, verses 39 to 46. How does he respond? Well, first of all, he receives her. Second of all, he defends her. And thirdly, he confronts sin. He receives her. He receives her honor and affection. He never says, hey, don't touch my feet. Hey, you're, you're, you're weeping on me. Your hair. I was thinking, what if Jesus was ticklish? That would be weird. It doesn't stop her. I, I don't know about you, but the amount of self-control to keep my feet there that it would take would be immense. He receives her honor. He receives her affection, regardless of the opinions of others. He knows what the rest of the room is thinking. I, I mean, to put it in a, a modern-day setting, she, she comes in, and everybody's like, oh, here she comes. It's the sinner, right? She's got, like, maybe a, a leather miniskirt and fishnet stockings and a deep-cut shirt and makeup that's way too thick. And everybody knows who she is. Immediately, the moment she touches Jesus, there's already bells and alarms going off in the minds of the crowd that is around him. But he doesn't care. He doesn't care at all. Regardless of the opinions of others, he receives her. And regardless of her sin, if there is anybody in the room that has a right to judge her, it's Jesus. And... He would be perfectly righteous to do so, wouldn't he? Like if he's like, hey, listen, please don't touch me. You've made a profession out of that, and I don't want to be associated with that. Your sin has gone before you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. And if he had said those words, he would have been 100% righteous to do so. 100%. But regardless of her sin, he receives her. Then he defends her. While the questions are hanging in the air, he speaks. He speaks and he gives this parable. He's like, hey, one, one guy over here, uh, he's got two debtors that owe him money and, and one of them owes him uh, 50 denarii, which is the equivalent of 50 days wages. One denarii was, was one day's wage. The other guy owes 500. That's, you know, a lot of days of wages, right? And neither one of them can pay. And you know what the, the creditor did? Is he just, he forgave them both. And which one is going to love the creditor more? Simon answers, well, obviously the one who has a bigger debt is going to love him more. He goes, that's right. Look at this woman. See what's going on here? Why does she love me so much? Why? Because look at the great debt. It's being forgiven her. Look at it. He defends her. Now, now think about this. In this woman's lineage, there is a long line of men that she cannot trust. There is a long line of men who have betrayed her trust, who have utilized her as though she were a tool in the shed. Do you know what it must have taken for her to trust Jesus? 
You know what a big leap that was for her? <laughs> and in this moment, her trust is well-placed. She finally finds a man worth trusting. And it's Jesus. He receives her, he defends her, and then he confronts sin. Now, notice this. Jesus, first of all, when it, as it relates to the woman, does, does he say, oh, you know, her sin's not that big of a deal, it's not that, you know. No, he's like, man, it's a great debt. That she, oh, she's caught. This woman's sins, which are many, he says. So he doesn't just like wink at her sin. He, he sees what the sin is. He calls it what it is. He knows the poison that it is. But not just her sin, but Simon's sin as well. You see, there were two debtors in his story, weren't there? One that had a big, big pile, huge amounts of sin. The other one, not as much. But they both had debt to the same creditor. See, Jesus, her Savior, receives her and defends her, but he doesn't do that at the cost of confronting sin. He mentions the fact that Simon has debt too, even if that debt is less than hers. And finally, let's look at her salvation. Her salvation has three characteristics. One, it was rooted in faith. Two, it was demonstrated in love. And three, it was accomplished by Jesus. It was rooted in faith. You know, Jesus says right at the very end here, verse 50, your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. Everybody points to the first part of Hebrews 11. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. My favorite verse as a definition for faith, though, is just a few verses down from there, Hebrews eleven six, where it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God because those that come to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. So here's, here's the big idea. Faith, this thing faith, the faith that saves, believes a couple of things about God. First of all, that he exists, that he's real, <laughs> that he's there, right? And second of all, that he's good. That his heart towards his people is loving, that he wants to save, that he is willing to pay for sin, that he desires to gather his people unto himself, that he's a rewarder of those that will diligently seek him. Faith, in essence, is trust in the character and the nature of God. And her salvation, the salvation that is declared to her in this moment, her salvation is rooted in a belief, a faith about Jesus. If I go and I, and I make myself vulnerable, if I put myself out there, if I, if I expose myself in this way, and even if everybody else rejects me, he won't. He loves me. He'll accept me. She trusted Jesus. Listen, trust is something that abused people don't do. 
It took tremendous faith. Probably more faith than the average person for her to trust Jesus because of her wounds. It was rooted in a confidence in the character and nature of Jesus. Second of all, it was demonstrated in love. The great weight of her sin created great depth to her worship. She, she believed something about who Jesus was. She believed something about the fact that he would not reject her, that if she came to him, he would in no wise cast her out. And as a result of that, her worship was so deep. She's the only one who noticed the dirt on Jesus' feet. She's the only one to come down and give him kisses and greet him and anoint him. As she trusted in his heart, it produced in her a depth of love and worship and affection towards Jesus. It was rooted in faith. It was demonstrated in love. And thirdly, it was accomplished by Jesus. The question comes, as Jesus says, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. The crowd that is there is sitting there. In verse 49, it says, who is this who even forgives sins? this guy think he is? Who, who, who is this that thinks he could just forgive sins? Who, who forgives sins? There's no sacrifice been offered. There's no altar nearby. There's no lamb that is present that's blood can be, can, can be shed to cover her sin. How, how does he forgive sins? Well, there's a couple answers for that. First of all, Jesus can forgive sin because he's God. He can do what he wants. Second of all, Jesus can forgive sin because he is the creditor who will absorb the debt unto himself. You see, this, the debt that is there doesn't just disappear because he says the magic words, hey, uh, your, your, your debt's forgiven. No, he has to absorb the loss unto himself, and that's exactly what Jesus will do. He's the one who absorbs her debt, and he's one, he is the one then who can declare that she is forgiven. They were wrong, right? There was a lamb. There was a lamb present. It was the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this amazing exchange happens in that moment. You see, as she's wiping his feet with her hair, she absorbs his fragrance And he absorbs her sin. So here's the question that we're left with today. Who do you identify with in this story? Now I know enough of you to know it's not Jesus. So let's set that one aside. You're not Jesus in the story. Do you identify with Simon? Or do you identify with the sinful woman? Now, let me just say this. I've been around church long enough. I know we all know what the right answer is. We all want to say, the woman, we're, yeah, I'm like her, right? But I, I thought maybe some questions would help us to verify that. First of all, here's this little test so you can know. How much do you love Jesus? Do you love him a lot? Or a little? Is worship difficult? 
Is prayer work for you? Like, do you have to like, make yourself pray? Is it easy to look down on the sins of others? Is there some group or some person in your life you're like, oh man, yeah, Jesus is never going to save that person. If the answer to any of these is yes, you have a heart like Simon. Or, or, or maybe you identify with shame. You, you identify with fear. You identify with the crisis of not being able to trust because you've been so hurt and so wounded and you found that this world is an evil and cruel place that will do you in every chance it gets. Maybe you identify with not being able to outrun your sin. Maybe you identify with running to idols that never can seem to save. They only numb. If the answer to any of these is yes, you have a heart like the woman. And here's the good news. The creditor who absorbed the debt, absorbed it for the sinful woman and the proud Pharisee. He absorbed it for both. He took it with him to the cross and there he nailed your shame your pharisaical pride, your sinful activities, your list of offenses against the God who doesn't just judge the outward actions, but even the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. He took it all and suffered on the cross, both physical and spiritual penalty for those sins. And all that you have to do in response is trust He's that good. That he is that loving, that he would in fact do that for you. If you're here today and you have not done that, maybe you've been carrying an immense amount of shame and guilt. Or maybe you're the prideful Pharisee that says, you know, I know that God loves me because I'm a good person and I do good things and I read this and I do that good thing. It's time to jettison both philosophies and to put your faith and your trust in only one hope of salvation. That is the Lamb of God who absorbs our debt unto himself, dies with it on a cross, paying our penalty, and purchases us, purchases for us grace and forgiveness. If you're here today and God is speaking to your heart, now is the moment to do that. Put your trust in Him. Put your faith in Him. If God is convicting you, listen, you need to turn to somebody next to you and say, hey, I want to put my faith in Jesus today. You need to reach out to somebody around you or come see me as a pastor or, or another one of the pastors here and talk with them. We want to pray for you. We want to point you in a good direction. We want to know that you're here and that you're, you're fighting to trust Jesus. Amen? So today is the moment. Put your trust in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder, God, I have been both the sinner and the Pharisee. I think many of us here can relate to that. Thank you that your grace is sufficient for all sin. Thank you that your death 
suffered for it all. That you are the Lamb of God who doesn't just take away the sin of the world, but as a result of that, the words that you spoke to that woman, you are forgiven. Is true for us today. For the person in here who is wrestling with their sin this morning and feeling the weight of condemnation and shame, speak your words to them. Tell them they're forgiven by the Holy Spirit. Tell them to put their trust in you to pay the penalty for that sin and that they don't have to carry that shame any longer. Send your people out into the world free because of the good news of a good Savior who loves bad people. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful, wonderful day.